we have started a series of messages from the epistle of James entitled, The Twelve Evidence of Faith. We have seen the theme of James' epistle. It's very simple. Anybody can claim to be a Christian. But James is saying, it's fine. You can claim all you want. But is there evidence to that claim? I mean, if you're guilty of being Christian, is there any evidence to convict you in a court of law? And then he goes on to list at least 12 of those evidence in that epistle. And we have seen seven of them so far. The first evidence is joy in the midst of trouble. Then defeating temptation, feeding on the Word of God, loving the unlovable, doing regular self-examination. And number six, the control of the tongue. And number seven, asking and receiving godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom from above. Today we come to evidence number eight, how to take down the three superpowers that are working against us. And I hope you already turned to James chapter 4. Look with me, please, as we examine these 12 verses. James here makes it very clear that spiritual warfare is for real, is part of the Christian life. It is part and parcel of living with eternity in your heart. That's what he is trying to tell us here in these few verses. You know and I know that Satan will do everything within his power to prevent you from growing up spiritually. He does that. You could memorize the Scripture. You can have all the biblical knowledge you want, but he will do everything possible not to let that knowledge go from your head to your heart. Satan, in doing so, he appeals to our flesh. He will appeal to our fallen nature. And Satan even sometimes attacks us directly, but other times he just assaults our thoughts and our emotions. And so let's look at those three superpowers and how to take them down by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the power to take them down. God gave you the power to take them down. I'm going to show you. First, the flesh. What is that flesh? Is that a human body? Not necessarily. In the Greek, there are two words that translated flesh. The human body is one word, but our fallen nature that we inherited from Adam is also called the flesh. So what is that fleshly desires? Listen carefully. How do I recognize that fleshly desires? How does it manifest itself? Selfish ambitions, viewing ourselves better than others, placing ourselves at the center of the universe, or highly valuing my ideas and my opinions. Always want to do things my way, not God's way. That is the legacy we've inherited from Adam. It's called the flesh, the old nature. Several names for it in the Scripture. So what happens to that legacy? When we become believers, what happens? Does the flesh die? No. The flesh, with all of its selfish and self-centered ambitions, become like a deposed dictator. I know dictatorship. I can sense dictatorship when I see it. (laughs) I lived in terror the first 18 years of my life of the treachery of dictatorship. 
before we come to Christ. The flesh is a dictator. It's dictating. You do this and you have no control. You follow your slave. You're in chains. So when Christ comes into my life, what happens? When He comes into your life, what happens? That flesh, that dictatorship is going into exile. And when I become born again, that dictatorship called the flesh with all its envy and bitterness and hatred and jealousy and selfishness and lust and pride became deposed. Not dead, just deposed. (laughs) And you don't have to have a 200 IQ to realize that deposed dictators do not like to be deposed. And they're not very happy. And they're angry. And they always want to come back to power. (laughs) They always want to come back to power. Now, you can choose to live in fear of that old dictatorship, the deposed dictatorship of the flesh. Or you can choose to have victory over that, because that's what Jesus wants you to have. He gave you the Holy Spirit so that you will have power over the dictatorship of the flesh. He gave you the Holy Spirit to empower you to live victoriously. Now, let me tell you an example from history to illustrate to you what I'm trying to say. All right? Between 1971 and 1979, there was a dictator in Uganda, a beautiful country in Africa. Between 71 and 79, there was a dictator by the name of Idi Amin. He terrorized that country. As a matter of fact, there's a film made about that miserable guy called The Last King of Scotland. During those eight years of miserable dictatorship, Idi Amin murdered 350,000. That's what we know. 350,000, mostly Christians. He imprisoned countless others. The people of Uganda, and I know many of them at that time, they lived in fear. They were terrified of Idi Amin. So in 79, with the help of the neighboring Tanzania, with Julius Nereri, they deposed that dictator and defeated him and sent him out into exile. And he went to live in Saudi Arabia between 1979 until he died in the year 2003. Listen carefully. I'm not just giving you an example of history for the sake of example of history. I want to prove something to you. Between 79 and 2003, while this dictator is in exile, thousands of Ugandans lived in fear of that dictator. Some were loyal to him, and they wanted to install him back by their free will. (laughs) This continuous fear and and loyalty to the old dictator, the deposed dictator, put them in conflict with the newly elected, democratically elected government. Now I come to the Christian life. Now I come to the flesh and explain from that history. There are Christians who are either living in fear of that old slavery or remain loyal to that deposed dictator called the flesh. But Christ, the liberator, has come into your life and into my life to liberate us from the deposed dictator, the flesh. Christ came to give us liberty over the flesh, all the old nature. Christ came to defeat and set us free from the old nature, the flesh, the tyranny of the flesh. What James is saying, every time you let the old nature out of its cage, 
<laughs> Every time you let the old nature out of its exile, what happens? Conflict and turmoil will be the norm. Now translate that into your life. Think about the times when you allowed the flesh out of its cage and how chaos, conflict, grief. You desire what you don't have, he said. <laughs> then you covet and you can't obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. And I know some of you saying, I know James said murdered, you've murdered. I said, Michael, 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 I've never murdered anybody. Physically you haven't. Physically I haven't. Let me ask you this. Have you ever killed someone's reputation? Have you ever assassinated someone's character? Have you maligned someone's name? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now, there's a biblical principle that I plead with you. I plead with you. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Here it is. A covetous person is an ungrateful person. A covetous person is an ungrateful person. When you are filled with thanksgiving, when you are filled with thanks living, you are too busy to covet somebody else's stuff. James said, when you ask and you don't receive, why? Because you ask with the wrong motive. Covetous desire will not only lead you into wrong actions, it will lead you to pray the wrong prayer. And when God does not answer your wrong prayer, you get angry with God. And then your anger and resentment toward God inevitably is going to spill over into your relationships with other people. And you become angry with those whose prayers have been answered. How? Because you think God has let you down. He's let you down. You know, I'll never forget to the day I die, a little over 20 years ago, I was talking to a brain surgeon at the hospital who was not a believer, he was not a Christian, but a fine person, really fine, well-known brain surgeon. And I was standing with the family. He was operating on a beautiful young woman from our church, 18 years old. And I was sitting with the family in the hospital waiting for him to come out from the surgery. And he didn't go to the family, he came straight for me. He said, explain to me why I remove bullets from the head of a criminal. And he recovers, and a few days later, a few weeks later, he's out on the street committing crime. And this beautiful young lady, surgery does not succeed. I must confess to you, all I did is just wept. But I understand that anger. I really do. I've seen it even among Christians. Listen to me, because when you pray, and you can pray and ask for anything you want. I mean, God is not going to fall off His throne because you ask for something. But listen to me. When you conclude in your heart and in your spirit, in your mind, that 
Thy will be done. And when you pray the will of God, contentment is going to grab hold of you because you are contented that you are obeying the will of God. When you pray for the glory of God, you'll be amazed what He gives you. Second enemy is the world. Again, when the Bible talks about the world, He's not talking about the beautiful outdoor or the planet Earth, nature. No. When the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about the world system. And there is no secret that the world system is at enmity with God. It's constantly in a state of rebellion against God. Sadly, many Christians get caught up and have fallen into the wheels of the world system. Spurgeon used to say, and I'm quoting from memory here, Christians are the only soldiers who fraternize with the enemy. Beloved, here's a rule of thumb. Listen to me. Whenever you compromise your Christian conviction under the guise of witnessing or whatever it is, you are fraternizing with the enemy. Whenever you compromise your biblical values, you are a friend of the world system. (laughs) I am privileged to have non-Christian friends. I go to their parties, I go to dinners with them, and I'll go to their functions. But I share Christ with them, and they know that I ain't going to compromise nothing for them. Listen to me. Both the Old and the New Testament has a, an imagery that runs through it. That God's people are the bride, and God is the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, Israel was the bride of Jehovah. In the New Testament, it tells us that the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's in the Scripture. It's very clear. And that is why James is saying, fraternizing, flirting, compromising, appeasing the world system is a form of adultery. He said, I don't commit adultery. That's what he's saying. Don't shoot the messenger now. And if you go to the Old Testament, Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and certainly Hosea. If you've never read the book of Hosea, go and read it. (laughs) Use this figure of speech to address Israel as an adulterous generation. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.10 of one of his disciples by the name of Demas, he said he succumbed to the lure of the world. He succumbed to the world system that he had forsaken me. And beloved, let me tell you something. It breaks my heart to tell you this, but it is the truth that we have lots of Demas-type preachers in the church today. They want to please this world system so much that they sold out their convictions. They want to be accepted by this politically correct culture so much that they approve what God disapproves. They want to be liked so much by this fallen system that they become spiritual adulterers. I'm not saying that the book says that. <laughs> Let me tell you a story of how you can pray wrongly sometime. 1700s England. In the parish of Hackney, just near London, there lived a man by the name of John Ward. True story. Well, little known about John Ward except he was a wealthy man and he served as member of parliament until he was convicted of forgery and ended up in prison in 1727. Ward is remembered today 
by the nickname the Hackney Miser. There's a reason for that, because after his death, and they found his daily prayer, it was written out. I want to read you part of that prayer, because I want to read all of it. It's too long, and it's depressing. (laughs) Here's how he prayed. O Lord, Thou knowest I have nine estates in the city of London. And likewise, I have lately purchased an estate in Fee Simple in the county of Essex. I beseech thee to preserve the counties of Essex and Middlesex from fire and earthquake. And I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire. I beg thee likewise to have an eye of compassion on that county. And for the rest of the counties, thou mayest deal with them as thou art pleased. (laughs) You don't have to go to seminary to recognize that this is a wrong prayer. This sorrowful prayer is probably put on paper what so many people don't verbalize in their prayer. It is so self It runs contrary to the principles the Lord gave us of seeking first the kingdom and His righteousness. Wrong prayer will not be answered. The third enemy that James talks about here is the devil. Verse 6, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves to God then, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands and purify your hearts. Verse 10, again, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Don't miss what I'm going to tell you. Don't miss it. Because fighting these three superpowers, the flesh, the world, and the devil, corresponds to the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The world is in conflict with God the Father. The flesh is in direct conflict with the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Galatians, there's a war going on, the flesh against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. Then the devil opposes God the Son. Let me ask you a question. What is the sin that caused Lucifer, the angel of light, who was serving at the throne of God, be thrown out of heaven? What was that sin? God bless you. Therefore, you can be absolutely sure that pride is Satan's chief weapon in the battle against the saint and the Savior. What is God's goal for you? You child of God. You the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. What is, there's a goal, and it's mentioned in the Scripture many times. There's one goal. Becoming like Christ. Becoming like Christ. What is the greatest characteristics of Christ? Though he was God, yet he did not count that equality to be something to be grabbed, but he surrendered it. He humbled himself and took a form of a man. Satan's goal for you is the opposite of God's goal for you. God wants us to be dependent on His grace. Every moment and every second of the day, Satan wants us to be dependent on ourselves. Every time Satan infiltrates our ego and inflates our pride, He entices us. He lets that dictator out of 
its cage. Very quickly, there are three keys to victory. They're right here in the text. Three keys to victory. James gives them to us. Key number one, submit to God. James speaks of these two things almost with one breath. He's not even taking a breath between saying, submit to God and then resist the devil and he'll flee from you. They go together. You can't do one without the other. You cannot resist the devil without submitting to God. And so when you submit to God, this devil is going to flee. I know and you know that in our culture, submission is not the hottest thing on Madison Avenue. Listen, I dare you to show me a commercial selling a product using the concept of submission. (laughs) Submission is a dirty word in our culture. Even Christians, they snub and ridicule the idea of submission to anyone. I want you to imagine an army, any army, anywhere, where the private or the corporal decides to take it upon himself and act as a general. And he starts commanding the troop like he's a general. Now, I want you to think about this. (laughs) Chaos will rule supreme. It's a disaster, and defeat is the end result. But that works everywhere. It works in the home, works in the church, works in the country, works everywhere. God placed parents in authority over their children. Children who submit to their parents' authority are blessed. Today, we have parents who are obeying their children. I want to do what my kids want. Really? That's not what the Scripture says. The same thing happens in the church. God plays spiritual authority. Leaders in the church are not perfect. Their decisions are not perfect. But submission to spiritual authority is the key to victory. Now, we might not like the laws in the United States. And I thank God that we still live in a country where we can work hard to change the laws. But once it's a law, we are to obey it, even if I don't like the slow speed limit. (laughs) I'm under obligation to obey it. But what happens if the law is contrary to the Word of God? We're going to be like the early Christians. We'll be like the early church. We're going to say, God is to be obeyed and not Caesar. And then be prepared to pay the price. The second key to victory is draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. What is that drawing near to God? Listen carefully. This is not physical activities. It's something you have to do physically. Drawing near to God is an inward. It's an inward activity. It's by constantly listening to His Word and constantly giving back His Word back to Him. How do you know that you're drawing near to God? You know that you're drawing near to God when you immediately repent of the sin that you've committed. Your spirit has become so sensitive, you don't wait for a day or a two or wait till you go to church on Sunday and then confess. You become so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that you immediately confess. You know you're drawing near to God. You know you're closer in intimacy with God. You're constantly being cleansed and purified. That's what he said here. Third key to victory. Humble yourself before the Lord. And then he says something about mourning and weeping. And I know probably some of you said, what did James want us to do? Look miserable all the time and and walk around with a sour face and look like being baptized in vinegar? No. 
this has nothing to do with outward appearance. It has nothing to do with the outward appearance. It's an inward. It's an inward. All of these keys are inward. When you become sensitive to what grieves the heart of God, there's a final warning in verses 11 and 12. I don't want you to miss it. He is saying, get rid of your critical spirit. Get rid of your critical spirit. Because a critical spirit is going to keep you from victory every time. It will. It will keep you from victory for sure. Verse 11, brothers, do not speak evil against one another. Did you know that a critical person is a prideful person? A critical person is the person who's saying, God, I'm the judge, not you. I'm going to sit on the throne. I'm going to judge everybody. But you will receive victory every time you resist the devil by not unfairly and unjustly criticizing a brother or sister. I know this is a tall order, but I'm here to testify to you regarding the defeating of the critical spirit. Now, of course, there's a difference between rebuking a sinning brother, which we have a biblical mandate for, that we ask the brother who is in sin to repent and turn to the Lord. And we point that sin. Not criticize him as a person or her as a person, but the sin. And it's not in the spirit of criticism, but in the spirit of restoration, because we want to restore the brother or sister. Today, you can expose the critical spirit to God. And He will begin to do in you. I know what He's done in my life and in many others. I know what He did for me. And I know He will do it for you. And as we go to the Lord in prayer, if the Lord brought you under conviction, whatever it may be, will you say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to leave this place without surrendering whatever it is that's causing me defeat. I want to draw near to you. I want to humble myself before you. I want you to empower me as I submit to you to resist the devil, because I know that's what he will flee. Father, I thank you for preserving your word for all these years. How many despots and arrogant people tried to destroy your word? You preserved it so that today we can be blessed by it, encouraged and challenged and lifted up. Father, I pray that you forbid it, that we be worried about the outward appearance, but we begin to expose our inward lives to you. You already know it anyway, and you're waiting for us to agree with you. And so, Father, whatever spirit is working, whatever deposed dictator is trying to get worm its way back to a life of a believer, we ask you in Jesus' name to give us a victory, not just now, but day after day, moment by moment, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.